This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, everyone. It's Saturday. I'm Emma Williams, and today's show is all about young people and their smartphones. Are mobile phones really such a menace? Should we all just get a grip and stop panicking about them? Or is this, like most things in life, a bit more complicated than a tabloid headline? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the show. The question of whether smartphones should be banned in educational settings has rumbled on for years. I found a Daily Mail headline from 2012 that said, ban mobile phones in schools. Just recently, the question of young people's relationship with the internet has raised its head again, with reported incidences of students sharing inappropriate, hurtful and indeed defamatory videos of and about their teachers on TikTok, a platform I have never visited and have no intention of doing so, especially after these latest horror stories. For me, it's always been right up there with rate my teacher as a place you really don't want to go on the internet. And this latest debacle has only confirmed my opinion. Amanda Spielman, Chief Inspector for Ofsted, supports banning phones in schools stating in 2018 that mobile phones make teachers' job harder. Within the last few months, Gavin Williamson, every teacher's favourite sacked education secretary, revealed his desire, while still in post, to ban mobile phones in state schools. While huge numbers of teachers are actually in favour of restricting the use of mobile phones in schools, and many schools do so already, Gavin's timing was, as usual, questionable. School leaders were close to breaking point, buckling under the strain of managing track and trace, eking out a dwindling budget, navigating a recruitment and retention crisis, and waking up every morning wondering just how many of their staff, and indeed of their students, would make it into school. Quite honestly, it perhaps wasn't the time to be talking about mobiles. In response to Gavin's pledge at the time to ban them, every teacher's favourite poet, Michael Rosen, wrote a scathing open letter in The Guardian. Well, it wasn't going to be the Daily Mail, was it, with Michael Rosen? It was entitled, Dear Gavin Williamson, Teenagers use mobile phones, get with the times. This is from April this year. He said, we are living in an incredible time. Whole libraries, vast banks of knowledge and multimedia resources are available to us via an object that fits in our pockets. Rather than encouraging head teachers to come up with ways to harness the technology, you tried to recruit them to a regime of blocking it. Are you seriously saying that right now we haven't got a fantastic opportunity 
to do similar things and more with the thing you want to ban. What an old fuddy-duddy you are. Well, this article was shared online, probably on a smartphone, by all sorts of people, including Professor Alice Roberts, who got quite a bashing from teachers in favour of the ban. So the debate rumbles on, and it seems it's not just Conservative MPs who hold the view that they should be banned. Labour MP for Tottenham, David Lammy, has just this month called for a ban on phones in schools. The head of the Michaela School and recently appointed social mobility czar Catherine Burblesing has spoken regularly and assertively about the damage she believes mobile phones can cause. She has talked about them being used as a part of gang culture, as part of the sexualization of young people. And here, I have a clip of her on GB News a couple of weeks ago, sharing her belief about the impact that they can have on very young people and their ability to read. Too often you sit on on the tube and you see children, two-year-olds, three-year-olds with a smartphone in their hands. And I know why the parents do it. It seems sensible. Why not give them a smartphone? But what they don't understand is that when they're then later trying to get their child to read, a book cannot compete with a smartphone. A book is flat and black and white. A smartphone has lots of colors and, and, and explosions and, and, and things that change quickly. And so later when the child then struggles to read, the parent might think, oh, he's just never really liked reading. When in actual fact, the truth is that it's because he spent too much time on that smartphone. And because all of this technology is so new, the parents don't necessarily realize. And often the children are so much further ahead in terms of their understanding of technology. So that's what I, that's one big, big thing that I'd like to do is try and get information out there to families and to schools so that we know what we're dealing with when it comes to this technology, which is great. I'm not saying it's bad. You know, at our school, we're constantly communicating via technology, the teachers, but we have to t be cautious and to think very carefully about what we allow our children to do and what we what we try and protect them from. So that was Catherine Burblesing, articulate as ever, uh, speaking on, on GB News. Um, I think it's really interesting. Obviously, I am a secondary school teacher, so I have far less experience with very young children and the decisions that parents have to make um, about what to give very young children that will compete with reading. And I just found myself thinking, well, that children have always had things that are more exciting than a book, which as she puts it, is flat and black and white. But it really did make me think about whether phones just in themselves actually hold children back from reading. I'll be interested to hear what my, my guest thinks about it. So Catherine Burblesing is, of course, a well-known advocate for, for having a blanket ban uh, on smartphones in schools. She famously does so in her own school and she advises parents to buy a brick, as she, she puts it. According to a teacher tap survey in 2019, while most primary schools either ban phones completely or collect them in at the door, only 4% of secondary schools impose an outright ban. Older pupils will typically travel to school on their own and may attend after school activities. And so the argument goes, they need their phones. Catherine would say, of course, 
buy them a brick. But I have to say, speaking as someone with the world's worst sense of direction, personally, I feel infinitely safer carrying a smartphone because I know it will help me find my way and indeed, worst case scenario, help me to locate myself if I get stuck and need someone to come and find me. If any of you haven't discovered the app, What Three Words, then look it up. It's fantastic. It's global. And it makes me personally feel a lot safer when I'm out and about on my own. That said, I am a complete idiot. So I work in an 11 to 16 comprehensive in Surrey. And earlier this week, I spoke to Matt Crowley, who is our assistant head in charge of safeguarding and pastoral care. Okay, so Matt, if you could talk me through why our school decided to move towards a zero tolerance policy on mobile phones. Sure, yeah. Um, I I think as someone who's on the front line of dealing with um, students um, and their wider needs in terms of their mental health needs, uh, emotional needs, social needs, um, it was something that was always close to my heart. We started, um, I'd say about seven or eight years ago, by banning phones in in lessons um, because we noticed on, on two different levels. Number one, Um, It was causing a distraction within the lesson itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Mobile phones going off, disturbing the the flow of the lesson. Um, Mobile phones being used to um, text in the lesson. Mobile phones being used on some occasions to uh, take pictures of staff in the lesson and then be uploaded to different platforms. So so that actually happened? uh, Actually happened, yeah. Many cases of us, um, and and I say many because over the years it was many, of us having to... um, find uh you know various uh phones that have been used to do it and then you 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 hit the trail of it and all of a sudden you've got 20 25 30 phones mm. that have then been sent that um video or that image um they often used uh, the function of airdrop for example so all of a sudden you've got not just their friends but you've got it in the canteen they airdrop the picture or airdrop the video that they've taken it goes to you know, and I'm talking, there's no word of a lie, sometimes upwards of 60, 70 phones that you then have to try and find. Oh, my goodness. Um, so it, there was that disturbance in the lesson and knock-on effect that, that had to be stopped. It, it just meant that too many lessons, especially with teachers that were more, not always just teachers that were um, less confident, uh, but those that were less confident and, and had to tightly manage their class, it was just one further disruption that, that we didn't need. Um but the other thing that led to it also was the before and after part of the lesson. Because as we know, the use of phones is addictive. Mm. So you would find that, that, that students would be later to lessons because they were finishing off their phone use mm. and wanting to finish off texting, finish off doing whatever they were doing. But then also at the end of the lesson, they were getting fidgety because they knew I'm going to be back on my phone in a bit. So you, you had it on both ends, yeah. really, where they would be late to lessons, but then also they would be, you know, disrupted at the end because they were thinking, OK, my phone, mm. <laughs> I've got to look at my phone, I've got to do this, got to do that. Mm. So we made some years ago, as I said, the decision to, to ban them in classes, which personally, from, from experience of, of what I, I felt had a massive impact straight away. Um, and of course, you had the, the few that would break the rule and this and that and everything else, but generally they respected it uh, and generally they understood um, and I'm not sure back then if we, we consulted widely on it. Um, we just kind of did it then when it was just in, in, in lessons and, and it worked a treat. But then I would say, was it four, five years ago? 
possibly. I was trying to remember. It feels more recent for me, but yeah, I think because we've had yeah. the, the pandemic and everything else. Yeah. I think it must have been about four, maybe four years ago. Mm. Um, we decided, and it was it was it was a feeling that we had that we needed to go further, um, because of um, societal issues and and and, and students' overuse of, of of technology. And there's a lot of debate on that. Granted, and I did a lot of research when we were sharing it with stakeholders that um, you know students use them for positives and actually it's a safety net for them and actually there are social networks on there that they rely on so taking them away would have a bigger impact however the balance of research that i went into and actually talking to the stakeholders in the school and we we did involve parents in this we held evenings where they could come and they could talk about it debate it we had student panels where we talked about it the overwhelming thing was that the the the, the negatives in terms of the the addiction of it and breaking the screen time so that they could then take part in 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 normal healthy you know youngsters social play and and Mm. and and, um and discussion and and everything else that was far more beneficial than them being able to keep the phones and actually you look now and you know you, you see they play they talk they're in groups they they converse they they, they experience what they should do at their age to develop those social links and build those relationships. When thinking back, it would not be uncommon. And this was one of the things we did. We spent a lot of time walking around and seeing mm. how do they use them? What do they do? And you would watch a group and kid you not, they would not get off looking at their phone for 20 minutes. Yeah. So they're not looking at each other. They're not talking to each other about things that are age appropriate. Now, when they get home, you know they're going to be online they can experience the technology they can use technology for for, for a benefit um but we wanted to preserve what little um kind of impact we had over their lives while they were with us to further that that social development and mm. actually for them to be healthy and, and, and learn from each other um and of course in some homes if if that kind of responsibility isn't taken if those limits yeah. aren't being, ever being placed yeah. at least they've got that one window exactly and listen we know as teachers that we have i mean statistically i think it's something between five and seven percent of an impact yeah on, on, <laughs> on improving so. yeah on improving academic outcomes yeah. but socially is it a similar kind of percentage there's no real data on, on what social impact we can have but if, if we can at least get them to forge better relationships socially in the small time we've got here why not go for it mm. um so that was that was one of the the, the, the main things um for them as a benefit but also we were seeing more evidence and it, and it wasn't just a minority we were seeing more evidence of phones being used to arrange things mm. so students would you know all of a sudden you have 30 students in a certain place and, and, and when we backtrack you find that they're they're organizing it on their phone mm. so go to here go to there now they've still got phones in school so they've still got them in their bags. You know, we, we, we didn't go that far to say they can't have it from a safeguarding point of view. But it's reduced it significantly. So they will still find out where to go and, and what to do in their own ways. But it has reduced that significantly. The, the kind of, we, we can manage issues when they arise much better knowing that there isn't wider means to be able to, to spread things yeah. of, of that nature going on. Mm. And we had a spate leading up to the decision that we made of um, them filming each other and, and filming each other in a negative way right. to film a fight, to film a, 
a, a, a, a situation, you know, someone arguing and then putting it out there. Yeah. Um, still, you know, when we talk about wider numbers, still relatively rare. But again, it was another reason that we thought, do you know what? This isn't healthy. And they need a, a place when they cross a line at school, they need to realise that this is where we focus on our education. This is where we focus on forging and, and creating better relationships socially. And we felt that the mobile phone was getting in the way of that. Mm. Um, and it, it, we, we didn't want to tell them that mobile phones were bad, social media is bad, because there are many good things about it, if, if taught in a, in a proper way and if used in a proper way. But um, the actual therapeutic benefit of not having it was mm. just too strong to ignore. And, and I think we haven't looked back. I think it's been a, a, a massive improvement, both for the learning and also for the development socially. Mm, I think really I agree. Do. I've seen huge differences. Yeah. I've seen more reading. Yeah. As well as more interaction. Yeah. Um, that's been really noticeable. Mm, absolutely. A yeah. lot more reading. You know, I don't. I don't now feel I have to. How I many you should be reading? Have you got a book? Yeah. Most of them have got one. Mm. Um, quite naturally. I, I think. It, I think it's also improved isolation, because you, you still see students on their own, sitting on their own sometimes, but it's fairly rare mm. that that's the case. Because, of course, when someone's on their own and they feel isolated, it takes someone to notice that they are to then do something about it. And if I think back, and, and, and this is very kind of anecdotal, whatever, because I don't remember the specifics, but you would, you would often get someone being perfectly happy on their own just sitting there with their phone. Yes. It's isolating themselves. Yeah, and whilst yeah. they may feel like that's fine, they're not forging those relationships mm. which could then stand them in good stead and build their self-esteem, mm. which this change has allowed. Yeah, so, it's kind of a prop for students like that, isn't I, it? I think it was, it's yeah. a comfort, isn't it? Yes. You know, as adults, we know what it's like sometimes. You're in a group of people waiting for something to start or picking someone up or being in a waiting room, you know, and if you don't want to talk to anyone, it's easy <laughs> just to look at the phone. Yeah. But actually, is that helping us? Is it helping us to benefit from talking to other people? Yeah. Um, no, I would say. Um, so, yeah, phones have their place and they have their place in society, but we felt they were... Um, a, a stumbling block for students to develop academically and socially. Mm. So you've talked a lot of, uh, about you know, the way it affects, affects all young mm. people and the impact on their socialisation, but obviously as lead DSL, you will have seen the very raw end of, of yeah. phones as a problem. Talk uh, uh, me through that. Oh, uh, phones are a big problem. The big problem about phones is the, is the fact that the people that are using the, the youngsters we're talking about, they're using them um, with lots of knowledge, so they know what all of these things are, how to use them, what to do, how the different filters work, how you take a picture, how you do a movie, how you send it, but they haven't got the wisdom mm. to know what the implications are around the things that they're doing. And you put in a group of young people together of different maturities, of different levels of ability, so some will be very skilled in understanding the nuances of, of, of um, humour and banter and the social skills you need to survive in a, in a jungle. Mm. Others will have absolutely no idea that they're being coerced, abused, bullied, you know, for, for want of a better word, if I'm thinking about the things that I deal with. We, we, we've had a recent situation in uh, year seven, can you believe it, just started, 11, almost mm. 12 years old. Um, and they have, what we found, I've had to write to parents and, and, and tell them, they have large WhatsApp groups 
And actually, WhatsApp, you technically have to be 16 to use it. I thought none of them use WhatsApp. They all tell oh. me it's really like for, for parents. I'll tell you what, year sevens love mm, WhatsApp. And they have, what, why it's hard for parents and us to keep up is they will have multiple groups. The same yeah. people, but multiple groups and lots of users. Um, but they, so yeah, going back to, it's 16 plus. And, and, and actually, mm. if you look on all of the kind of, NSPCC, NetAware thing, they recommend 16 plus as well because it's encrypted and you can send anything. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a number comes up, do you, wanna, do you want this person? To, yeah, boom, there you go. So it's, it is unsafe. Sometimes very harmless, and trust me, I've got experience of this because I've been reading through the WhatsApp groups of year sevens even this week and, and things that have gone on. But it only takes one little thing to make it just switch. Um, and we had a, 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 a student on there um, that uh, someone had doctored a picture of them. Um, so they had their face and they put their face onto and an not explicit but in, inappropriate a sexually inappropriate image and then of course everybody else started sending them but the, the, the student that it was about didn't have the skills to realise that they were being bullied essentially mm. um, and it got out of control and then um, they, they started saying oh a friend of mine's interested in you so they invited their friend from another school who then had another friend from another school and in the end those friends then private messaged this girl that, that wasn't able to understand what was going on. And they had a separate message where that person then sent very explicit images to the, 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 that young girl. Oh my and this wasn't seen for a few days. So you've got all of that going on in a very fast, rapid pace um, and very limited parental influence over it. And I've spoken to the parents about it because the parents are often scared. They're scared to... Um, challenge their young person about their phone because they got so addicted to it even if they mention like I need your phone at 10 there's a big argument mm. there's a big flare up so they don't enforce it so then their phones are underneath their pillows all night you know so <laughs> no matter how many evenings or advice you send over time limits turn your wifi off have those challenging conversations mm. a lot of them a lot of parents don't have the skills really to to understand and to do it so it's a toxic environment. So without, without the adults providing the wisdom through the teenage years of a young person, it's incredibly risky. Mm. And parents have to work hard on that. Yes. You have to work hard on the relationship to have those difficult conversations. And you have to set that up very early mm. when they first get the phone. And if you don't set it up, by the time they get to 12, you've got no hope. Yeah. Um, and you need to understand a bit about the functionality like, do you know what they're doing? Mm. So if they say they're okay, how do you know? And then you've got to have that open relationship where they're actually comfortable for you to look through of things. Yeah. And that, that's really challenging stuff, you know. And no one teaches you how to be a parent, do they? No. Um, so phones can be incredibly dangerous. I mean, and we've written to parents. We've seen certain students. We've even had the police come in to see those students to let them know so that they, they try and think about it in a different way. What is the impact? What can it be? Mm. Um, because further worrying statistics I've read is that you can teach them all you want, but they'll come back and say, well, we're kids, we take risks. You know, we're going to do it anyway because we can. And, you know, um, but it's those times when it goes darker and it goes further and, and then they get into the realms of being groomed or being um, coerced, which does happen um, and uh, happens more regularly than I think people realise um, that's when it becomes obviously an even more serious situation um, and 
it's it's happening more often because as the result of the pandemic and people working more on their own and being more isolated and being in their rooms and not wanting to go out obviously they turn to that don't they so it, mm. it's we, we've seen an exponential rise in 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 in, in um cases going to uh siop child protection and online protection and, and the police having to deal with those things um seen a rise in in, in calls to child line in calls to the nspcc of of kids that have just they, they can't cope and they've got themselves into sticky situations um so yeah technology is a force for a lot of good but in my line of work it's it's the bane of it's because of your long work it, it is, but, but because you're so not in control mm. you know i can pretty much keep the kids in, in in the school safe most of the time and you're in control of that but um online you're not um and uh it's it's, it's challenging um and that will be an ongoing issue for us to do is to make sure that you try and give them the skills they need but they're always going to be youngsters they're always going to take risks so mm-hmm. it's just about being there for them um, to try and help them mitigate that risk yeah absolutely mm. well thank you so much it's been really useful and a s- sort of salutary reminder of just how serious it all is yeah i'm not sure i've uplifted you very much <laughs> but um but I, I think that the, I, the final thing i would say is that is there are incredible you know teachers want to help and there's an incredible movement uh, across the safeguarding community and and with teachers to to try and be try and provide better advice and skills to try and do it and i think that i'm also sensing there's a lot more in, in uh, government level and, and the agencies with government um uh, uh, safer internet um council um internet watch foundation to try and help mm. so you know hopefully we'll get there but yeah. yeah, it's a long road. It is, it is. Thank you so much, Matt. It's all right, no problem. Matt Crowley there, who is our uh, assistant head in charge of safeguarding uh, uh, where I work, and uh, I think incredibly highly of him, and I'm really grateful uh, to him for giving me some of his time. I think it's the first conversation I've had with him in his office when his office phone hasn't gone off, which is quite amazing. Although I think you could hear the minibus reversing ping in the background if you're wondering what that was but uh, Matt towards the end of our conversation really started to touch there on parenting uh, and obviously the the limits of, of school influence compared to the influence of parents on their children and after the break I'll be interviewing Dr Cathy Weston which I'm so excited about she's one of the UK's experts on parental engagement in children's lives and learning She's the co-author of two books on the subject and the founder of Tooled Up Education, which is a digital library for schools packed full of evidence-based resources relating to parenting, family life and education. She holds a master's and a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Cambridge and is originally from Northern Ireland. So Cathy is a passionate spokesperson on all things affecting family life. I'm really looking forward to hearing her views on what she calls digital hygiene. So stay with me while we hear from one of our sponsors. Don't go away. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. 
Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello, so Kathy, are you with me? I am. Can you hear me okay? I can. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So absolutely wonderful to have you on and I'm absolutely keen to hear what you feel about parents' influence over children with with their mobile phones. Because obviously, first part, my, I'm coming to it very much as a teacher, um, but parents have so much more influence, don't they, than, than I do. Absolutely. And I think aren't I was just reflecting on the fact how, how lucky the pupils are in your school to have such a dedicated a head teacher who is absolutely correct in everything he said. But look how hard uh, parents have made his job. Uh, it is a, this is entirely a parenting issue. It is parents who put phones in children's hands, uh, often at the point of transition to the school. Uh, and it is parents who instill or don't digital values uh, that are pro-social and positive or, or they don't. And, you know, one of my passions in life, obviously, is empowering the parent to do whatever they can to work in partnership with the school. And I always say to parents, you know, who are you sending in every day? Are they well slept? Have they, do they know how to use their phone in a positive way? You know, teachers, you, I mean, you're, listen to the energy and time that has been taken up in a school uh, for a head teacher to be able to manage these issues. This is a, everything is so jumbled. Uh, you know, the, 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 the schools are working almost in a sort of a, with an emergency response to some of these extremely difficult issues all caused by smartphones in the classroom or in the school environment. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. And certainly in the 20-odd years I've been in teaching, the, the amount of time that is taken up for us with this kind of thing, you're absolutely right, is, is horrifying, really. Um, certainly time that could be better spent on, you know, on, on children's education, which is really what we're there to do. I've had um, Leanne texting in saying, I was once told as teachers, we should almost be able to co-parent with some parents. I mean, but we can't, can we? <laughs> well, I think what's happened is the onus, the pressure on schools to deal with every single issue uh, that comes up related to a child's well-being, mental health, everything, the pressure has just been landed on schools. And that is unfair. It is disproportionate. And it is absolutely the case that both, uh, we all know teachers are extremely altruistic people. We need to build parental capacity in schools. We need to change the, the sort of the weight of this. We need parents to realize they are still the most important and powerful influence in their children's lives. And the school, you know, we've forgotten that schools are there to teach children. It's about, they're meant to be, teachers are meant to be experts in learning. They're not meant to be experts in mental health, well-being, digital hygiene. I mean, we've just lost the plot. We need to have a recalibration of this relationship. And I think what's happened is, you know, um, unfortunately, smart, at the point of transition, it has become terribly fashionable to buy your 11, 12-year-old 
a smartphone and everybody says, you know, all parents have often parents have said to me, oh, my child needs a, a phone as an alarm clock. And I always say, buy them an alarm clock or they need a phone to tell me where they are on the bus. Well, you know, there are other ways around that. They don't need a smartphone. And in that regard, I would concur with what Michaela um, said earlier. But this is, a, this is the challenge. At the point of transition, I think schools have the power to shape the dialogue about phones and say, listen, we're okay for you having a phone on the bus home, et cetera, et cetera. But these are our rules. Uh, these are, and I think uh, what's happening is the introduction of smartphones at an extremely delicate stage of puberty is very, very difficult. So you can remember when we were at school, you know, we'd go in every day, maybe our friend was speaking to us, maybe they wouldn't, we were trying to, you know, manage how we felt about ourselves and how we looked and, and suddenly a smartphone is introduced. And it's like a sort of a bomb in the middle of this very, very delicate identity development and identity construction, all because somebody wants to know when their child's caught the bus, you know, we have to be, we have to get a grip on this issue. What your lovely head teacher was saying, it is the absolute tip of the iceberg in terms of what is going online. And I was chuckling to myself when you mentioned Michael Rosen's article. That article really annoyed me. And of course, he's a national treasure. You wouldn't dare criticize what Michael Rosen said, but I wanted to, I wanted to ring him up and say, Michael, would you like to hear how these children are often using phones in the classroom environment. Would you like to see it? Would you like to, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, it, I'm sorry to say it was quite a naive um, article because, you know, the litany of uh, poor digital hygiene and consequences, which we've already alluded to, is just stark. And I think between Gavin and uh, Michael Rosen, you know, everybody's a little bit right, but we've got things a little bit jumbled. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I agree. I mean, the article infuriated me. And um, part of what he was saying, he, he was talking about the way, you know, how obviously they are fantastically useful devices. And he was talking about how he uses it. I mean, I, I recorded my interview with, with Matt on a smartphone. And oh, I should say you're, you're promoting him, by the way. He's our assistant head teacher. I feel I feel I need to crowbar that in just in case <laughs> the actual head teacher is listening. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of course, they're incredibly useful, but the way he was talking about how children can and should be using them, it was so naive because he was talking about it as if every child comes from a really solid, well-parented, um, well-managed home full of books, full of education, you know, all of the advantages in the world. He seemed to have absolutely no clue of the reality of, of say a school like Catherine Burble sings Michaela where she she has taken a really tough stand on them because she has seen they are used in gang culture in sexualization of children and and frankly for not much else and and so of course she's banned them that's right. it's a completely utopian view you know uh, it would be fabulous wouldn't it if children were doing their quizlet latin on the on the <laughs> school bus on the way to school they're not they're watching an hour and a half of Netflix. They get to school. They have their break. They game. They play Minecraft in lessons, often watch pornography in lessons, on the bus, uh, bully each other. I mean, it is it, 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 that is the tip of the iceberg. I'm being polite. 
So the key thing is we have lost the plot, but the good news is the evidence, as I always say, you know, there is a manual for parenting and it's the research evidence. And the research evidence suggests, A, we need to stop going on about screen time. Screen time is a concept that people mock in the world of education. It's not how long they're spending on something. It's what they're doing on it. Yes. Yes. And that is key. So as a parent, you know, with children, teenage children, myself, I'm interested in what they're doing online. We're all online all day. We're all addicted to our phones. Yeah. This is a family issue, but it's about teaching your child how to cross the road, how to use a phone. It, it's the same thing. And what's mm -hmm. happened is we have given very young children smartphones, which is essentially a handheld computer with no guidance. With you know yourself, even with children who are teenagers, you still have to remind them how to cross the road sometimes. These mm -hmm. need repetitive, consistent learning about using a smartphone. What's happened is nothing happens and then something explodes. They do something they deeply, deeply regret. They get themselves in trouble. The police are called. The learning isn't happening in the way that learning should happen. We, I have a 15-year-old myself. Every single night of that week, we will. I will remind him, we will talk about, we reiterate messages around digital hygiene and the repetition and the consistency of that learning, because it is hard, is it is critical. Mm, mm. So going back, if we um, talk about Catherine's point about very young children being given a smartphone and that impacting on their learning to read, what what's your view on very young children and these devices? I think it is a tragedy that half of 10 year olds in this country have a smartphone. I think it's dreadful. I think it bodes very, very poorly for the future. And the reason for that is childhood has already been severely reduced in terms of experiences, in terms of access to play. The pandemic has had a great role in that. Uh, socialization is more, you know, children aren't playing on the streets. They're not playing in the park. We live in a very, you know, protective society, but we're prepared to give them a smartphone. And what happens is we all know how attractive a smartphone is. Why would you build with blocks when you have a smartphone? Why would you do a jigsaw? Why would you draw? Why would you go and play with bubbles and potter around the garden like we all did playing hide and seek uh, if you have a smartphone? So the, attra the attraction of the smartphone is completely outweighed by, you know, uh, they're not doing what they should be doing. I think all of us need to understand that children under the age of 10, they need to be playing excessively, not online, offline. They need, and one of the reasons for that is play has such a contributing, a contributory role in children's resilience, emotional regulation. Um, and we're just forgetting about that sort of emotional literacy. That is much harder to achieve when a child's playing an online game on their own in a solitary fashion. So the decimation of play is what we risk with the introduction of smartphones at that age. And, you know, of course, all the other dangers. You only have to read the Internet Watch Foundation's horrific statistics that were released a year ago where it's said that sexual predators online are targeting very, very young children. And disproportionately, they are targeting girls. And um, so we have, you know, it's, 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 it's just why, why would you give a child 
under the age of 10 a smartphone you have to explore your own reasons is it fear of missing out is it because you worried they're going to be bored one of the greatest disappointments um for me is seeing children including my own children in the car or on a school bus never looking out the window i think that is a great tragedy because we know that the imagination um the ability to think creatively it, it all comes from time alone time thinking time just time space and time to digest what the world what's going on in the world around you and in fact it's led me on family long journeys in the car to say do you know what the first 30 minutes of this 4 hour car car journey you are not allowed on the digital device and of course the first 10 minutes is packed with moaning after <laughs> 15 minutes 20 minutes and this is no word of a lie my youngest looked out the window and he said oh mommy what's that and i said that's a haystack how do you make haystacks and then the eldest uh, child was saying how do pylons work like how do you, you know and i thought right this is it you know yeah, this yeah. has to be and as your lovely deputy head teacher said earlier we have to work hard we have to work harder we have to work so hard as parents to grapple back some intellectual curiosity that has been decimated you know, it would be wonderful if children were using smartphones in the idyllic way that michael rosen describes that is not going to happen when you're learning on the phone is is alongside the temptation of playing clash of clans or fortnite or minecraft it's just not possible mm, i completely agree and i th- i i think what you said earlier about our society being very risk averse in the sense that we don't you know lots of parents don't like letting out their children to play anymore you know we have this sort of phenomenon of helicopter parenting where children are watched by adults the whole time not given any freedom and yet and, and it seems to go hand in hand with that oh well, we've got to keep them busy so we put into their hands a device via which we invite all of the horrors of the world into their laps and it 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 is extraordinary isn't it the shift that we've made in society of what we think is normal and acceptable and the fears that we have about things that probably aren't going to happen well the, the truth of the matter is again everything is jumbled if you want to really be a protective parent you don't give your child access to a phone at night you don't allow them to interact with adults on games which many of them are doing You don't allow a child under the age of 13 on TikTok interacting with adult uh, adult men around the world which is extremely common. Yet, you know, a lot of parents think they're being very protective. That is not being protective. What is, you know, it's important to think about where the risk is. A child is significantly less likely to be abducted by a man in a van on the street than they are to being approached online. So in the bathroom, in the bedroom, and the internet watch foundation uh the the lady in charge of it the ceo susie hargreaves she was recently saying that in one of the worst cases of sexual abuse that she'd seen as an organization a little girl was in her bedroom on her phone and downstairs you could hear the mother calling out you know uh, your dinner's ready so we have to remember where the risk is it lies in the phone uh it lies we know that uh, in uh, sexual predators for example have shifted methodology and they're trying to encourage young people to self generate content online mm. it's happening you know it's happening everywhere 
It's happening in the bedrooms, in the bathrooms. So when you think about what is it to be a good parent, what is it to be a protective parent, we have to unpick where the risks are and be very logical about it. Um, so I think it's interesting when, again, this sense of overprotection. In, in, to be um, a parent, if you, to be a parent who wants to raise a very resilient child, an emotionally resilient child, a digitally resilient child, Again, one of the methodologies for doing that is through play. Children need to be taking risks in play, not in play online, but climbing trees, uh, taking, you know, practicing their social skills, playing sport, uh, all those lovely things that exercise that sort of a resilient muscle. So, you know, it's interesting. We know that overprotective parenting will lead to le uh, poorer mental health in adulthood. But what does, you know, Stopping your child climbing a tree is a, is a bad idea because they need to experience this stuff. But giving them a phone, you're make at a very young age, you're making your life and their life so much harder, in my opinion. Mm. So you um, you mentioned two things. You, uh, you talked about uh, 10 years old being way too young for having a phone. And you also talked about, uh, and uh, this is news to me, but I suppose it's not being a parent, I kind of miss out on this kind of school gates kind of thing um that it's a rite of passage that children go off to secondary school and kind of get gifted a, a smartphone so what would your advice be to parents about when is the appropriate time to allow their child to have a smartphone and then how they manage that process well i mean i always i'm very honest with parents and say with my own children i didn't give my eldest a phone till he was 14 um, and the reason for that is everything that I've described, because I wanted him to be mature enough to be able to manage uh, social media, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it didn't cost him anything socially. Um, I think we need we're very with my 12 year old. He still doesn't have a phone. So I think that you have to ask yourself, why am I getting them the phone? Um, if my child uh, needed to communicate with me on the bus, well, maybe I would have got them an old Nokia. I am a fan of the old Nokia for that purpose, or um, I would have asked them to find a different way of communicating with me. Uh, but um, I've spoken to other very senior mental health researchers, and they wouldn't have dreamt of giving their child a phone till they were 16. So to be honest, um, I think the key thing is before I gave him that phone, I told him everything that could happen on it. I told him, I talked to him about the risks. He was 14. He was able to listen. I said, somebody's going to try and show you pornography on the school bus. This is going to happen. Children are going to be sexting in your environment. This is all there. It's all going to happen. And then we sat down and discussed what our family digital values are. And he was able, he, by the end of the conversation, he was begging me to check his phone with him. <laughs> The key thing is, it is, it is your um, colleague was absolutely correct. It's hard work and you have to hold the line and you have to not care what other people think and you do what's best for your child so that um, my child is able to come home and say to me, look, some, somebody said something terrible online or I've seen something upsetting. That's where we want to be. We don't want to be policemen. We want a parent. But it is so hard to navigate this digital world for them, for us, that we have to find a way of doing it together. And I think it is a big mistake to give your child the impression that your their phone is a diary that somehow you're not allowed access to. You're paying for it. You're paying for the contract. 
They rep the stakes are very, very high. Uh, they could write something uh, that is racist, sexist. They could take pictures of themselves and send it to someone else. If they're naked pictures, it's a criminal offense. The stakes are very high. Hmm. I have tried to ver instill that into my teenager. But even then, occasionally, uh, we'll because uh, they're learning, we'll have to say, that's not appropriate. I'm not happy with the way that that's working out. What do you think about that? Why do you want Snapchat? Tell me more about it. Let's research it together. So the tone that we're trying to achieve is one of gentle collaboration between parents and teenager. But you can see it's much easier at negotiating and having positive conversations with a 14-year-old than a 10-year-old who uses their phone. You don't know what they're doing. Before you know it, you've no access to the phone. You know, so I think my messaging is really, you know, the stakes are very high. And we've talked about mental health. We've talked about digital hygiene. But adolescence is a very difficult time. Um, and I think it's not that I'm against smartphone use. These children need to be digital citizens, good digital citizens. And in that extent, Michael Rosen is correct. However, you can't just give it to them on a plate without any dialogue or sort of, a, you know, reiterating what your family digital values are. And Emma, earlier on, you mentioned uh, the disgraceful behavior of children mocking teachers on TikTok. If that was my teenage son, he wouldn't have a phone for a month at least after that. And we would have to go into assembly and tell everyone what he did and why he did it and what he's learned from it. Yeah, uh, there have been some some really, truly horrifying things going on. And of course, you know, TikTok, I gather, have not been proactive in responding. Um, and it's yet another case of, of, a, of a large platform failing to take full responsibility for the content on its platform. Um, really horrifying. So other things that we perhaps haven't yet touched on. So obviously we the the risk of, of children having this, as you say, it's a computer in their hands, an, an unfiltered computer in their hands, potentially. Um, but of course, beyond that, even um, things that might seem benign if we think of what's been in the news recently with you know the former Facebook employee um, acting as a whistleblower and, and basically sharing with the American courts research Facebook's own research showing that um, and obviously most young people don't use Facebook but they use Instagram which is fundamentally the same thing owned by the same people their own research not only showed that um, these sites were influencing politics, which I think we all had a pretty good guess at, but showed that it was affecting young people's mental health. They have that information, and she is accusing them of withholding it to make money. Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting because it's the 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 broader research evidence on teenagers' use of social media. It's quite mixed, so. You know, I wouldn't want anyone listening to this thinking face, that Facebook research was sort of completely applicable to all teenagers because, as we learned during the pandemic, social media can be a friend. Uh, mm -hmm. Young people were de desperately needed to connect with one another during the pandemic, and it serves a great purpose. If children are feeling good, if children aren't feeling vulnerable, 
So the, well, social media is both friend and foe, but the answer is really, it's all about your child. If you have a child who's very vulnerable, if you have a child who's going through some mental health struggles, if you have a child who's being bullied, if you have a child who doesn't feel have very high self-esteem, social media can be a very difficult space. So social media per se is not the enemy. It's really, again, how resilient is your child? And um, the other thing about social media is that uh, the, we know from research in Australia by Tracy Wade, the more social media apps uh, a teenage girl has, for example, the more likelihood, uh, the more likely it is that she would have disordered eating behaviors and thoughts. So again, the key thing to sort of extract out of the general debate about social media is it it's all about how you how resilient your child is in the first place so sometimes i think that facebook debate um sort of pointed you know it was interesting because yes facebook have have identified something we've all known in the research literature but again there are two things as parents and teachers to think about and that is that social media isn't all bad um for mental health and secondly um it's very much about, um, you know, the dialogue again with that teenager about their particular digital diet and, and making sure very young children are not accessing those apps. That's why they have a minimum age requirement of 13. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love you to stay with me if that's OK. Um, so I'm going to take us to the news. And after the news, we have my uh, Teachers Confess slot, which is, of course, relevant. Um, I like to pick a relevant confession. So the confession does involve early usage of the Internet. Um, so after the news and the break, Kathy, I think we should maybe start to talk about some of the positives which you've touched on there. Um, like you say, it's not all bad, is it? And I wouldn't want anyone to go away from the show thinking that we are anti-Internet, because personally... I love it, not least because we're talking on the internet right now. And uh, that is fantastic. So do stay with me and uh, I'll be back after the news. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. In a unison press release issued on their website, union leaders celebrate the inclusion of all education staff in the new Department for Education Wellbeing Charter. The relaunched charter issued this week now includes support staff, following union pressure for it to be more inclusive. Previous incarnations of the charter focused entirely on teachers and school leaders, but left out almost 50% of school staff, including teaching assistants, caretakers and catering staff. Unison recognised the move to include all union staff as a positive one, and Lee Powell, Unison's National Officer for Schools, said we look forward to working with schools and colleges to promote the mental well-being of all staff. In Scotland, plans to help reduce teacher workload by reducing teachers' weekly class contact time by 90 minutes have been described as challenging by Scottish Education Secretary Shirley-Anne Somerville. Ms Somerville said in a report on the TES website that she can't give a definite timescale, although she promised that it would still happen. The plan to reduce contact time by an hour and a half a week was one of the most eye-catching promises made in the SNP manifesto for parliamentary elections in May. 
According to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, contact time is disproportionately high in Scotland and is a major cause for concern for teachers and school leaders. Workload increases caused by a range of factors associated with the pandemic are also featured in a piece on the TES website. An article by James O'Malley highlights the issues schools face in recruiting supply teachers to cover for absent staff. The article cites Department for Education data for early November, which showed that 2.1% of teachers and school leaders were absent for COVID-related reasons. The article also highlights that with winter approaching, other seasonal illnesses are also causing absence. Schools are increasingly finding the usual pool of supply teachers is not as deep as it once was, and that the cost of supply is not something schools can now easily afford. Solutions which many schools are having to put in place to manage staffing shortages include combining classes, having senior leaders take lessons, and drawing up plans that could see entire year groups being sent home in an emergency situation. Undoubtedly, the situation is challenging and is yet another contributing factor in the increasing stresses and pressures faced by school leaders and those working in schools. Finally, Lincolnshire Live reports that, in a bid to promote well-being, the University of Lincoln held a dog de-stress event on Wednesday. The event was organised by Lucy Robertson, a third-year medical student, for the Medical Society. And the feedback included comments that the therapy of petting dogs seems to have worked. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. Well, a dog de-stress event sounds absolutely fantastic and I'm very annoyed that I was not involved. Well, never mind. It's time for my regular feature, Teachers Confess. Do you have something you'd like to get off your chest? Something you said? Something you did? Something you forgot? We all have them and they can haunt us forever. If you'd feel better bearing your soul to the nation, then this is the place to do it. My DMs are open on Twitter, so you can contact me on there. Today's confession is from an English teacher whom I will call Anna. I had the very first bank of computers with the internet in my classroom. No one else would have them. The IT guy showed me how to go to Alta Vista and search for stuff. I was so excited. I suggested to my year 13 class that we did some online research. We all went on, went to Alta Vista and typed in our search, which was, of course, the name of our text. Turns out, if you type wife of Bath into the internet, you instantly get photos of my wife in the bath. On every computer around the room. Not enough bubbles to hide anything. Legs akimbo. In essence, I taught a group of students that the internet is for porn. I think this was 1998, if that is any defence. Well, Anna, of course it is a defence. We've all been there. <laughs> Those of us that were entering the profession at that time, um, that was just when I was finishing my postgraduate studies. Uh, and I remember people were vaguely talking about this thing called the internet. And then as I started training, my recollection is 
um, one of my fellow trainees saying, I found this great new search engine. It's called Google. Now, I didn't, I didn't know what a search engine was, um, but he showed me Google and uh, well, that was, you know, never had to open a book again. Um, but yeah, the reality is we had no idea what the internet was all about. So I certainly remember in my training year, in my first placement, I had a year seven class uh, in the computer rooms. I mean, I, had no, I didn't even know what the internet was. And one of the children searched for, for a picture of a kitten. And again, that didn't end too well either because it's just like uh, Anna's school clearly didn't, no filters, no filters at all because schools had no idea absolutely no idea how to handle these things so i don't know if uh, that you have any familiar if that's familiar to you kathy those those days well i was just reflecting on the fact i still remember the day i was in university and my friend said watch this if i send a message my sister at glasgow university is going to get it and i said no way said, this is called email and i was like what so we sent yeah. a very tentative message and um, it managed to get through. Uh, so that was quite funny reflecting on that. Yeah, I mean, that was it. I just I remember, I think when it's sort of last year of my PhD, I, I went to a conference and more than one person said, Have you, are, are you on email? And I thought, ooh, sounds like, sounds like something I should maybe get. And then, yes, I, I think I had, you had to sort of log on to Telnet. It all seemed very complicated. So that was the only experience of the internet I had was like you say, just sort of sending a message. Um, and then, yeah, it just, and, and yet within a year or two, it had exploded. It's extraordinary to think back. <laughs> but I mean, does it surprise you to know that schools had no internet filters at all? So we had banks of computers, set the kids off on them, no filters, no firewall, nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think in some settings, we're still catching up, right? I mean, you know, children just put VPNs on their phones and they can do whatever they like in school. Um, mm. So I think children are often much more skilled. Um, they've become extremely digitally savvy. And, you know, what uh, I think it's not surprising to hear that, but keeping up is very, very hard for all of us. And I think children do a much better job at keeping up with the tech. They're not afraid of it. They're happy yeah. to experiment with it. They're they're very, very easy. But they don't have that sort of anxiety that potentially we have because they've grown up with it. Mm, I think that's true. So should we talk about some of the some of the positives? Because I, I think it's important not to sound like an old fart. And I do sometimes worry that's a route I might be going down. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, do your, you, you talked about sort of protecting your, your children and that would be your advice to parents from having a smartphone when they're too young. But now they are entering that, that world. What positives do you think there are for young, young people online? Well, I mean, their entire future and employability uh, skills are, will be based around probably on a computer. Uh, so we have to embrace this beautiful concept of digital citizenship. One component of that are employability skills and being able to use tech, see the beauty and joy of using innovation within technology um, and the power of it and how it can do good. But we know there's an, another side to that, you know, before they get there, managing social relationships online, et cetera, et cetera. So I think digital citizenship is a very helpful concept as a parent because you're thinking, who do I want my child 
to be? How do I want them to behave in the digital world? Just like parents think about, oh, where, where do I see my child in a few years? What are my aspirations for them? What are my hopes for them? Who, who are they? How can I facilitate them finding that out? But who are they in the digital world? And mm -hmm. teaching a child to be a good digital citizen. Well, first, frankly, we're all learning how to be good digital citizens. And um, sometimes adults haven't worked it out either. But having a sort of a family discussion about digital citizenship, the good that we can do, the fundraising, the sharing of our skills. I've seen some beautiful social media Instagram accounts of teenagers who have created origami sculptures, art exhibitions. Uh, fundraising for their local community. It can be, it's an extremely powerfully uh, important tool for social cohesion and all those sorts of lovely concepts. But it's all about balance. Everybody says that it's such a boring phrase. It is so true. And really, we're looking for balance. So I always say to my children, isn't the internet amazing? I love using it. But we have to be careful, we have to be discerning, we have to be digitally literate, we have to be critical of what we see and hear and consume. So the broader message is about digital literacy and that too is a great component of digital citizenship. So we want our children highly skilled, we want them enjoying their time online, but we want them to be discerning, we want them to be digitally critical, literate, and to very keep a good eye themselves on their own mental health, on how this stuff that they're reading, seeing, or viewing is impacting on themselves. Is it helping or hindering? And teaching them to be, you know, one of the big components of resilience is that you can stop doing what isn't a good, what isn't helping, what doesn't feel good, what isn't effective. So the answer to it is that, you know, yes, the internet is a glorious, mind-boggling revolution that has transformed the way we live today. But on the other side, it is also, as I say to my children, a giant dustbin. And I have actually done this. I have taken a stinky kitchen bin into a school, put it in assembly, and I've said to children years ago, um, who wants to come and put their hand in my kitchen bin? <laughs> and they'll go, oh no, you know, you never know what you're gonna find, etc." I suppose the internet is like that. If you're not careful, if you're not sensitive to what you're looking at, what you're looking for, and so there is a balance, right? And yeah. that balance, I think we need to be talking way more about being good digital citizens and less about this old fashioned argument about screen time. We, we, you and I probably spend, well, I would spend about nine hours a day on a screen, right? The research, and our children will when, when they're employed, the research suggests screen time can affect posture, sure, eyesight, sure, mm -hmm. but it, it, what are they doing on it? That is who are they connecting with? That is the great series of questions that Professor Sonia Livingston at LSE uh, talks about very much. Uh, who, you know, the three C's, who are they connecting with? What are they looking at? What's the content? Um, so I think we just need to read, you know, be careful about where we're putting the emphasis in these arguments. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, yes, we can sound not only foolish um but but actually sound like i mean people were panicking about color television when when we were young and, and there was all, all the horror of children staring at the television uh, and i think sometimes the the conversations around as you put it screen time can sound just as ludicrous um other than as you say the effect on posture and 
uh, eyesight by just staring at the screen and you, we should encourage people to look at something in the middle distance occasionally you know that's that's all a sort of physical side of things but you're right it's not it's not the phone itself it's not the screen itself it's not the internet itself it's it's managing it isn't it and also going back to what you said about um resilience and making good decisions for your own mental health and i think that is absolutely crucial isn't it it's about talking to your children about making decisions am i actually enjoying this or is it just a habit that i've got into would i be better off moving away from this platform for example i used to be an avid facebook user and then one day I thought, do you know what? I can't remember the last time this has made me happy. I just find it quite irritating and stressful. So I just basically bowed out. Uh, and now I hang out on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and it's about modelling that to our children. So it's a good idea if you're a parent listening to say, do you know what? I don't like seeing pictures of celebrities on beaches in the middle of November. I'm going to unfollow <laughs> that account. I'm going to unsubscribe. You know, we have to yeah. really empower our children to have the confidence to make, to be their own best friend, you know, to think this isn't feeling good. I don't like the fact I haven't had enough likes on, on Snapchat or whatever this week and I feel bad about it. You know, we don't want them to be in that dreadful space and trap. Yeah. So, you know, again, you can hear that actually digital resilience is about the way our children think. In fact, the smartphone isn't the enemy. The internet isn't the enemy, it, you know, but it's about the way we think. And you've just described, you've been able to say, that doesn't make me feel good. I've caught myself with these thoughts. I'm going to unsubscribe from Facebook or not use it. You know, that's that's a wonderful way to model that kind of digital resilience to children, you know? Mm. And it's hard, right? It's hard for everyone, not just teenagers. It is, but I love that phrase you use, be your own best friend. And I think that, to me, is the absolute mental health mantra that I, I mean, my, my form get very bored of me sharing my mental health tips. But um, I think I, I, my key thing, and everyone, whenever I say this, looks at me like I'm slightly strange. But I say a good test, if you wouldn't say it to a friend who's upset, why are you saying it to yourself? Or if you wouldn't do it to a friend who's upset, why are you doing it to yourself? You know, think about the voice that you've got in your head. And make sure it's looking out for you. Well, um, and it seems like a revelation to a lot of people that that's what they should be doing. Well, self-compassion and kindness to yourself and thinking, is this going to be good for me? Is this yeah. going to be good for my mental health? Is this going to be a good move for my career? Putting a mm. picture of me, you know, um, intoxicated at a party at 16 on Facebook. is who's that, What's that going to do? Is it going to help or hinder me? Yeah. And I think this goes back to self-esteem, self-worth. You know, we are trying to protect our children's self-esteem and self-worth and self-identity, those very, very difficult things. That's why the smartphone complicates that process. Mm. So I think that, um, you know, it is about being protective of yourself. You know, I always say to my teenage son, you know, I know someone, I know you'll be curious. I know someone will try and show you something. I'm just asking you to think first, to just say, wait a minute. To say to your friend, wait a minute, what is it? What do I want to watch it? You know, and that's very hard to achieve. But um, the impulsivity, the curiosity that are all normal um, uh, attributes of adolescence, they just, again, we have to help our children manage very, very difficult emotions, manage peer pressure. But it's very, you know, it's interesting because often parents can't cope with the fear of missing out, right? So we, we have to be able to model 
resisting the pressure to do what everyone else is doing and model that heavily. Yes, and of course, by, for example, resisting the pressure to um, join the the majority who give their child a smartphone at, say, age 11, um, you're doing that. And certainly I, I've taught children who have mentioned in passing that they're not allowed any social media. Uh, it is increasingly rare, I have to say, because obviously I teach teenagers, but there, there, were, there have always been a few and they are, without fail, some of the most well-adjusted children I've ever come across. And I think that must be because those conversations are had at home. I don't think it's the, the banning in itself. It's the fact that there must be reasons behind that which are then shared and discussed in the family setting. Well, it's interesting because children will always say, Mommy, you know, you're so strict, you know, I'm not allowed, whatever. But I'll always say to my children, I promise you that I will always do what's best for you. I'm not interested in what anyone else is doing. I'm interested in what in what's best for you. And to really kind of, you know, convey that message, we know that parenting in an authoritative way will lead to more resilient children. I should say that sometimes it's not possible. Some, some children do need a phone at the point of secondary school for all sorts of reasons to do with safeguarding or to do, you know, uh, with, with having to contact a parent or so. And some schools have, have facilitated that. So we just have to be careful. We're not sort of telling everyone off because they have a, you know, if you can get away with not giving your child a phone before the age of 11, that's great. That's what I'm saying. Mm, mm, I agree. And as I said, I mean, I rely on mine hugely. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I have an absolutely diabolical sense of direction and I, I feel infinitely safer. Now I have a, you know, a, a, basically a, a guide in my pocket. And if worst, worst came to the worst, somebody could literally come and find me um, via the phone. Um, but I think the reality is that most children are just going from their home to the school and they're not going to get lost are they um they're not, oh, they're not the thing is, it's a very dark night and my son uses his torch now on his phone you know these things are multi um you know they have so many different functions and skills but the key thing is you know um it's really about instilling some sort of sense of propi propriety in your child making sure they know in our family in our school, we do not do that. We wouldn't dream of mocking a teacher like that. We wouldn't dream of, we know, trying to apply the granny test. Would granny approve of what you have said or what you have done online? That is absolutely fundamental. And I think the earlier we can get these messages to children, um, the better. You know, um, it's hard to just sort of come along with these messages at 15. We have to start these conversations. But oh, we would never do that at you know, eight, nine, 10, rather than 14, 15, 16. Mm, I think that's so important because certainly one of the things Matt said to me um, when I spoke to him this week, uh, which wasn't part of the recording, is he was talking about, he's a parent as well, and, and he was talking about how important it is to have these conversations early, you know, before they get these devices. And he said the big problem we see in secondary schools is parents have realised, oh, okay, I might have made a bit of an error here, or I've given them this phone, I haven't really talked about, you know, I might have said, oh, yeah, be careful, but I haven't, you know, I haven't really, as you said, re repeated it and re gone gone over it frequently. And then, of course, then they try and backpedal. And what happens then is the parent ends up in a 
daily or usually nightly screaming match with their teenage child because they're trying to kind of claw back control and it's kind of too late and of course so many parents then don't do that because I mean how what parent wants to end up in a stand-up screaming row with their teenager every night it's absolutely so they give up and that argument, those arguments at night, we now know from the sleep research, they are that the, it is the argument, it is the emotional arousal that comes with an argument that's inhibiting teenage sleep. So that's an interesting point. But I think if you are in a position where you've given them the phone, I've met many parents who've suddenly realized their 13-year-old is interacting with some adult, you know, miles away and they have to claw it back and they have to get a grip on it. It's never too late, but it's the it's where again we're not placing it. We're saying, oh my goodness, darling, you know, I've read this research, I've heard something, I'm very concerned. I feel like we need to have a bigger, wider family discussion about how we all use digital devices and try and engage the child. Um, first of all, by sharing what you've learned, what you know, what you're worried about, and they can be part and parcel of the solution. They should be able to reassure you. They should be able to teach you. They should be able to say, look, mom, I know you've read about things about Snapchat. This is how I use it. So to be frank, if there's nothing to worry about, the child should be amenable to at least a conversation about it. So don't run in and sort of grab the phone off them at nine o'clock at night, whereas you wouldn't have done that before. This is a family discussion. This is a recalibration. And that, you know, again, the stronger and more positive a relationship you have with your child in the early teenage years, the more likely it is that they will be amenable to a sort of a different approach and having a family discussion in a democratic way mm-hmm. about everyone's use of it. You know, it's not just about them. It's about, wait a minute here. We need to just redefine where we are. Are we happy? Is everyone safe? Is everyone treating each other people on, you know, well online? And it's less pressure on that particular child. Mm, I, th- I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I, I imagine what happens is is parents, you know, in that awful situation that you you describe, presumably panic and 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 therefore are not acting the adult in that position because they're so frightened about what's happening to their child, quite understandably, and they perhaps then that's what causes the friction because they're not sort of stepping back taking a breath and and thinking about how to approach opening up that dialogue but of course it's so much better if you can open up that dialogue before crisis point isn't it absolutely and it's really really difficult when you're upset about something you've seen on your child's phone and you know they've been horrible to someone else or someone's been horrible to them but the key thing is to in fact the from the research evidence, we know that the greatest tool you can have in your parenting toolbox is the ability to have open, transparent conversations with your child. The greatest thing you can do before the age of 13 is to cultivate that sense of trust uh, between you. And as hard as it is, you tell your children, if you tell me, you know, we've introduced something in our parenting called truth walks. So they can go around the block once a month and they're allowed to tell us anything and we promise not to shout, not be cross, not be angry. And when you give children a sort of a structured time to open up and share, a little bit like you've done this morning, Emma, with the confessional slot, it does get filled, right? People like to disclose, children like to get things off their chest as well. But if they are afraid of us, they will not do that. And in my 
opinion and experience that could that can actually endanger them so we have to be you know hold your stomach sometimes it's very very difficult to listen to the things they tell you but the first thing out of our mouths as adults is thank you for telling me thank you for sharing it with me thank yes. you let's work it out together as you might be angry inside, you might be raging, but you keep it to yourself. You allow them to tell you, look, mommy, I've seen something I shouldn't have watched. Thank you for telling me. Um, it's really, really critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think certainly parents, I know that when they've, you know, t spoken to me as a friend and have shared things that they're terribly anxious about that their child is, uh, the first thing I always say is, they told you and that is massive that you know hang on to that that is the most valuable thing they came to you that's right i mean my colleague who's a professor of adolescence and child mental health she said if they're not speaking to you they're looking it up on the internet so you know the only thing we have is that trusting close relationship closeness is a protective asset closeness between parent and child the positive relationships a child enjoys with their teachers, all of those things are protective assets. So we actually do have a lot of power as teachers and parents because these children trust us, they get on with us. You know, that rapport you have with your pupils, it's a positive asset, it's a protective asset. So we're all much more powerful than we think we are. And I think we just need, this is about future-proofing children and making sure that we are there in that space, helping them navigate risk um, as well as we can. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So if you were to sum up your advice to, to parents about how to manage those early conversations with their, their children about internet usage, what would be your key key tips for parents to take away it's teaching the child well first of all banning the internet in your home banning them from using or using searching stuff on google won't work policing in that way doesn't work it'll just increase appetite so it's a gentle balance it's like i used to say to my seven eight year old if you want to look something something up that's great mommy will help you do it and we'll learn to do it together if you put in a particular search term to Google with no filters on, as you say, all sorts of things can come up. So you mm. teach them over time to be careful and be discerning and watch what we're putting in. And if we see anything upsetting, we know how to get rid of it quickly or tell an adult. So there's different age appropriate advice for different ages. Mm. Um, and then as they move into secondary school, the summer before secondary school, you open up, you talk about it, you might read some newspaper reports together, you might read about different challenges that might happen, preemptive strikes, I call them. So preemptive strike, look, it's probably going to be the case that somebody shows you something that they shouldn't, that somebody might email you something that, you know, and you talk about spam and you talk about scam calls and you talk about all the things that can happen and just let them know that they have tools in their toolbox to manage those different scenarios then when it actually happens they'll say oh mommy that actually happened mm. and they become leaders not followers they can actually um inspire their friends educate their friends um, and be a good influence as well so preemptive strikes are incredibly important and then as they move into secondary school, it's about open dialogue. And it is still about expectations around behavior. You know, I'm constantly reminding my teenager that, you know, he's representing us as a family in that school. He's representing himself. You know, reputation is very, very delicate these days online. 
um, you know, and we just have to be positive and we have to all model it and be part of that. It is not just about them. It's about family values, family digital tattoos, family, um, you know, proactive approaches to digital citizenship. We're all in it together. Mm, that sounds like really fantastic advice. And of course, you touched on something there, which which we haven't even mentioned. Uh, you know, we always think about the, the, the deepest, darkest um, side of the internet in t- when we think of our children in terms of sexualization or their exposure to pornography but you mentioned there the basic you know cyber crime and them getting drawn in by spam and and how important it is to talk to to young people about about that because any of us can get tricked by by a spam email um and and it must be incredibly easy for a young person new to getting a smartphone to get click on something and and have no idea what they're clicking on well, it can be quite good fun teaching children about spam calls. So when I get one, I will put it on speakerphone and I'll actually let my children who think it's very funny see how I deal with it. How do I know that person is a scam caller? How am I speaking to them? How do I end the phone call? You know, so they're very interested in that. And it's about being digitally literate and having a family approach to those different issues. Children are very good at spotting, um, you know, it's a great exercise to do in a school. Is this a genuine email or not? How might you know? What can you teach your children, your, your, sorry, your parents or grandparents about how to identify it? You know, it could be a little project at school. But cybercrime is absolutely rife. Mm. And, um, as, and I think children have a great, and this is a good point to make to teachers, you know, they have a great role to play in researching these issues. You don't need to do all the heavy lifting and having their own little research projects at school. They might have to interview their grandparents or their parents about how many scam calls or things they've had in a week and let them steep themselves in the research evidence because I promise you it will have an impact on their own behavior. So sometimes we're just sort of giving children information and leaflets and telling them what to do, but actually they can be great um, co-creators of the solutions if they're allowed to be. Mm, I love the idea of them in- interviewing family members because of course all of us have got great scam stories that we can uh, share and, and I think that would be a really great approach. <laughs> to be frank I think quite a lot of teachers need um, a bit of educating in this because I certainly know more than one colleague that has clicked on the wrong thing in a <laughs> when a spam email has made it through our filter at work <laughs> um, and ended up uh, you know spreading uh, viruses but um i think yeah some maybe uh, not all teachers are as digital savvy as they as they should be and that's okay because you've got six formers you've got fifth formers who can do the work for you i think it is incredibly powerful when you can create peer-led research projects and peer-led interventions we know from the research into mental health they are very powerful I would be getting young people to do their own research projects into teenage sleep, into digital. So we're not telling them what to do. We're bringing them along with us. And you're actually affecting uh, pupil culture, school culture, when you say, when when you have children presenting to other children saying, listen, we've worked out that 90% of us are doing something we're not comfortable with online. You know, what can we do about it? So I think there's a change there. There's a change of mindset. Um, that we need to, you know, really encourage these children to be good uh, researchers and that that sense of evaluation and sense of knowing how to find things out is another 
component of being a good digital citizen as well. It absolutely is. Of course, that, that discernment, you know, what am I looking up? What source is this? Do I trust it? You know, is this is this health advice from the NHS or is it from some nutter selling some worthless product? That's right. And all you need is, a, you know, you, you don't need external speakers on this. You show the email that your colleague got in assembly and you talk it through and you say, how did Mrs. Smith get it wrong? What could she have done differently? And everybody's party to that. It's meaningful. It's contextual. Children, are, uh, uh, you know, are interested in real life case studies, aren't they? Mm, I think that's very true. They, they always listen up more if I say, you know, I'm talking about an issue and then I'll say, my friend or I or my, my parents or, you know, they immediately that they, 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 you can see the class shifting. And uh, and I think that's, well, it's, it's human, isn't it? We're all more interested if it's a direct personal story. I think it's important to reach into these issues, you know, with, with, with this TikTok thing that's been happening with teachers, I would be really stopping the roundabout there, getting off and, and as a school, looking at our relationship in general to TikTok and instigating a few research projects across the school that children have to do. I wouldn't let it go. I don't think a letter home will be sufficient. I think that it's it's a good opportunity to look at the whole school, you know, people relationship to digital media in, in, in general and what digital hygiene means for us as a school community. So I think there are great opportunities within these sort of little crises. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, Cathy, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this morning. We are running out of time, I'm afraid. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, sharing your, your thoughts with us today. And I uh, hope to chat to you again very soon. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everyone. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. So thank you again to Cathy and obviously to uh, Matt Crowley, who shared his thoughts in an interview with me this week. Um, so grateful to him. And I hope you'll join me again on Teachers Talk Radio. Later today, we have Joseph Hammond at one o'clock and Jane Manzoni after that at three. But for now, do look after yourselves and have a great weekend. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.